Now, before we begin, let me ask you a question this morning. Do you ever doubt God? And I'm not talking about an unbeliever's doubt about God's existence or a skeptic's doubt that Jesus is the only way to the Father. I'm talking about a believer's doubt, the doubt of a Christian, the doubt a Christian experiences when they are confronted by heartache, suffering, and trials. I'm talking about the kind of doubt that wonders, where is God and why won't he help me? When the pain is insufferable and unrelenting, when the longings of your heart have gone unanswered for so long, and when the darkness of sorrow and loss is so black that it seems to block out the noonday sun, we begin to doubt God's goodness. Surely, a caring, loving, merciful God would not allow the pain that I'm experiencing right now. Where are you, God? Do you even care? Have you ever experienced this kind of doubt? Well, I have a feeling that many of you have, and perhaps there are several of you sitting here today who are going through this right now. Well, if that's you this morning, then I want you to know that you are not alone. If you are struggling with believers' doubt this morning, I encourage you to hear the Word of God speaking to you from His holy, inspired Word. For in our passage this morning, we are going to see that even the great and faithful John the Baptist experienced this kind of believer's doubt. And we're going to see what Jesus does for him in his time of need. Let's read Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 23. The disciples of John reported all of these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Our passage this morning reintroduces to us John the Baptist, who we last heard of four chapters ago in Luke chapter 3 when he baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. The thing we need to recognize first and foremost about John is that apart from Jesus himself, John was arguably the greatest man who had ever lived. We were first introduced to John the Baptist way back in chapter 1 of Luke when John's birth was miraculously foretold by the angel Gabriel, who told John's father Zechariah that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit even in his mother's womb, and that he would be set apart from birth to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And since John was, in fact, the second cousin to Jesus, I'm sure he grew up hearing all the stories about Jesus' miraculous birth and the angelic proclamations that were made about Jesus, that he was to be the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior of the world. So from childhood, John knew and believed Jesus to be the Christ, 
And so when Jesus first appears on the scene as an adult, it was none other than John the Baptist who baptizes Jesus. At this baptism, John witnesses the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus in the form of a dove, and he hears God's voice coming down from heaven saying this about Jesus, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. John was a true believer. He was a man of great faith. Make no mistake about it. He was a prophet and a fiery one at that. And he preached a forceful message of repentance. And according to Jesus himself, among those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. But here in our passage this morning, in Luke chapter 7, we find a very different John, a more subdued John, a discouraged John, a not-so-great John, a John who is no longer sure about Jesus. Now, you might think it incredible, impossible even, that a person who had actually heard the voice of God proclaiming, this is my beloved Son, should ever waver in his faith. But I think deep down, we all know through our own experience that this is very possible, that pain and trials and suffering can have a debilitating effect even on our most deeply held, deeply cherished beliefs and experiences of God. I think through our passage this morning, many of us are going to relate to John the Baptist who, although a strong believer, still doubted. Look again at verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Our passage begins with John's disciples reporting back to John all the things they had seen and heard Jesus doing. Jesus' disciples, I mean, John's disciples had been following Jesus and they had been witness to the miracles that he was performing. And what were some of the things that he was seeing, they were seeing? Well, earlier in chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, Luke tells us that Jesus healed a Roman centurion servant who was on his deathbed. And then Jesus marveled at the faith of the centurion. Then later in verses 11 through 17, Jesus resurrected from the dead. He raised from the dead the only son of a widow who lived in the town of Nain. These were no small miracles. And people all over Israel were starting to hear of Jesus, including the disciples of John the Baptist who are going back to him now and are reporting all of the wondrous things that Jesus has been doing. Now, you may be asking yourself, why did they have to go back and report to John? Why wasn't John witnessing, witnessing these things for himself? Well, it's because John was in prison. John had been in prison probably close to about a year or more at this point after being arrested by Herod Antipas. You see, in his fiery preaching, John had been publicly reproving Herod for all the evil things that he had done, including marrying Herodias, his brother's wife. And so as any tyrant will do if you displease him, Herod wanted to kill John. So he went after him and locked him up in prison. But he didn't kill John immediately. 
And so at this point in our story, here in chapter 7, John has been suffering in prison now for many, many months. And as each passing day goes by, any hope John may have had that Jesus was going to come and rescue him slowly but surely slips away. John, who had lived out in the wilderness under the stars for most of his life, is now locked up, suffering in a jail cell. He knows his time on earth is running out, and so doubt begins to rear its ugly head in John's heart and mind. Now, you might be thinking that when John hears these stories coming from his disciples about his cousin Jesus, about how Jesus has miraculous power over sickness and disease, over the demonic realm, over nature, and over even death itself, that John's faith would have been bolstered and even encouraged. Well, maybe that was his initial response. But think about it. As John contemplates his current circumstances, locked up in a dungeon, eating horrible prison food, sharing a cell with all sorts of criminals, or worse, in solitary confinement, as he looks around and realizes that he is slowly rotting away in his prison cell, These stories of Jesus' glorious power, his authority and incredible miracles, well, they probably started to feel more like a gut punch, a slap in the face rather than something to be celebrated. For if Jesus really does have so much power, then why am I still here in jail? Why am I still here, Jesus? You're my cousin, after all. We are family Why heal a Roman centurion's servant but not save your own family? Why raise some unknown woman's son from the dead but leave your own cousin for dead? Why can't you spare just a little bit of time and attention and get me out of here? Don't you care? Haven't I served you well? Haven't I been faithful? I'm only speculating about John's response. But if that were me rotting away in that prison, I'm pretty sure that that would have been my response to question Jesus. I would have been frustrated, angry, fearful, despondent, hopeless, filled with self-pity. And how do I know that? Because that's exactly how I sometimes respond now to the trials and the so-called suffering that enter my comfortable little life. And I don't think I'm the only one. For many Christians, our doubts come not because we don't believe in God. Our doubts arise because we do believe. We've believed. We've made a commitment to God and to His church. We've tried to serve Him well and be faithful, to train up our children to follow Christ. And in doing all of these things, we start to expect God to watch over us. We expect Him to protect us and to provide for our needs. And he does. He absolutely does. But his care and concern for us does not mean that everything in our life is going to go smoothly and that we will never experience trials and hardship. Now we pray and we hope that a good, loving God will keep us safe from all the terrible effects of a sin-ravaged world and that hardships and sorrow will never intrude into our lives. But God has never promised this to us. And even though we know intellectually 
that God's sovereign will for our lives does not include a pain-free existence, when suffering and sorrow comes crashing into our life unexpectedly, it hits us like a ton of bricks. And the shocking force of the pain shatters our intellectual faith and we begin to doubt God's love. And we begin to ask questions like, is God really there? Does he truly care? These are the questions of a grieving, pain-filled, hope-challenged believer whose life is filled with sorrow and personal tragedy. Now, I don't think it's fair to John to automatically assume and place him into this category of despairing doubt. But I do believe that pain and suffering can cause even the strongest believers to doubt. And so what do we do in times like this? What should a believer do when we find ourselves doubting God? Well, we do what John the Baptist did. We go straight to Jesus. We go straight to him with our questions. And as we shall see in just a moment, Jesus restores our faith by taking us back to his word and showing us what he has already done as evidence of who he truly is. Now, we'll talk more about this in just a moment. But before we do that, I want to mention another reason for a believer's doubt. And I think this reason is arguably more impa impactful on John's faith than even his suffering and hopeless situation in prison. I think John began to question Jesus because in spite of the fact that he knew all about the Old Testament scriptures and in spite of all that he knew about Jesus himself, John still didn't have a complete and clear understanding of who Jesus was and why he came to earth. And so because of his incomplete understanding, John's expectations of Jesus were faulty. And when our understanding of Jesus is incomplete or worse, incorrect, then what you expect from Jesus will be skewed. And when Jesus fails to meet your expectations, you can bet your bottom dollar that you will experience doubt and your faith will start to crumble as soon as the smallest trials enter your life. This is why studying the Word of God is so important and why each one of us must do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the Word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. We must know what God's Word says about Him so that our understanding of Him is complete and so that our expectations of Him are based on truth. So how did John's understanding and expectations of Jesus fall short? Well, to help us understand, we first need to remember that John was the son of a Jewish priest named Zechariah. And the priest's job was to teach the Old Testament scriptures to the people. So undoubtedly, John learned the scriptures from the teaching of his dad. John grew up hearing his dad, Zechariah, teach him about the messianic prophecies. Now, back in Luke chapter 1, at the end of the chapter, starting in verse 67, we read Zechariah's tremendous Holy Spirit-inspired prophetic sermon about the coming Messiah. And in that sermon, Zechariah declares that the Messiah will save the nation of Israel from their enemies. The Messiah will deliver Israel from the hand of all who hate them so that they could serve God without fear. 
He said that the Messiah will be like the sunrise to give light to those who sit in darkness and who are in the shadow of death. And he said the Messiah would guide them into the way of peace. And so John grew up hearing and believing that when the Messiah would come, he would come as a conqueror to deliver the nation of Israel from all her enemies. And he would usher in a period of peace, righteousness, and holiness. John lived nearly his entire life in the wilderness preparing for this glorious day. He preached with all of his heart a message of repentance that ultimately landed him in prison, but he would not back down. He would not back down from that preaching because he believed that he was, as the prophet Isaiah said, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. You can hear John's conviction and his passion as he preached to unbelievers with fire in his voice. In Luke 3, we read John's words as people were coming to him to be baptized. He said, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The Messiah is coming and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This was John's fiery message of warning for the people to repent because the Messiah is coming, and when the Messiah comes, he is going to come with unquenchable fire to purify the land of evil and wickedness. So repent. Repent while there is still time. This was John's expectation of what the Messiah was coming to do. And so when John's disciples report back to him stories about Jesus being a gentle compassionate friend of tax collectors who eats and fellowships with sinners, is it no wonder that John begins to doubt? Now, without a doubt, Jesus is doing miraculous works of healing and is displaying great power and is teaching like no other prophet has ever before him, but he's ministering to Gentiles he healed the dying servant of a Roman centurion. He raised the son of the widow of Nain. Was she even a believer? The works that Jesus was reported to be doing, although miraculous and wonderful, did not fit the role of the Messiah that Jesus had in mind. Where was the winnowing fork that would separate believers from unbelievers? Where was the unquenchable fire that would burn up the unbeliever like chaff? Where was the axe laid to the root of the trees of those that are not bearing fruit? Why wasn't Jesus delivering the nation from the corrupt, evil Roman government that was occupying Israel? And why was he, wasn't he upending the equally corrupt religious regime? You can almost picture John the Baptist's turmoil in his jail cell. This is not what I expected, Jesus. How can this be? And it wasn't just John the Baptist 
who didn't have a complete understanding of Jesus. It was all of Jesus' disciples. And taking just one example to make the point, in Matthew 16, Jesus asks his followers, who do you say that I am? And Peter makes this great confession of faith when he answers, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. To which Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter understood who Jesus was, and he believed in him. He had faith, but his understanding was limited. For just a few verses later, when Jesus begins talking about his death and resurrection and that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed and on the third day raised again, Peter takes Jesus aside and he begins to rebuke Jesus, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Can you imagine the gall of Peter to rebuke the Son of God to his face? And so in response, Jesus turns to Peter and he says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Although Peter believed, he had a limited understanding of Jesus' purpose on earth, which led him to skewed expectations. And eventually it led Peter to his ultimate act of doubt when he denied Jesus three times. I'm not trying to be critical of John or Peter or any other of the disciples except to say that all of them encountered doubt because of an incomplete understanding of Jesus. None of these guys had the benefit of having the New Testament, the crucifixion and the resurrection that was still all in their future. They hadn't yet gone through Pentecost and the Holy Spirit who would one day lead them into all truth had not yet been given. These were all the benefits that the disciples, including John the Baptist, did not have. And so it shouldn't surprise us at all that John's limited information and skewed expectations about Jesus, coupled with his physical suffering in prison, caused even the greatest prophet to begin to doubt Jesus. And because of John's doubt, he sends two of his disciples to Jesus with the question, Are you the one to come? Or should we look for another? Now, how does Jesus respond to John? Look at verse 21. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. Now, in answer to John's doubt, in answer to John's question, notice that Jesus does not respond with anger or with a rebuke. Rather, he responds with great compassion, not by using words, but as Luke tells us, in that hour, meaning right then and there, Jesus starts healing people of their diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and he gives sight back to the blind. You know, it's interesting to know that Jesus would not do this for the Pharisees when they asked him for a sign to prove that he was a Messiah in Matthew 16 and Mark 8. Jesus knew the Pharisees' hearts. He knew that they didn't believe him and that they were just trying to test him. And he refused to play that game with him because he knew their unrepentant hearts would never believe. Their hardened hearts could not believe. And I think some of us in this room should take special note of that this morning. 
but for the believing John the Baptist, who is struggling with pain and uncertainty and doubt, Jesus shows great compassion because this is the nature of God. As the psalmist tells us in Psalm 103, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God knows how weak even the faithful can be. We are but dust. And so in his great compassion, when we are at our weakest, Jesus chooses to heal rather than extinguish us. We are told in Matthew 12, which is a quote from Isaiah 42, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. And he shows us so much compassion in part because he understands what we are going through. He understands our weakness. As it says in Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so for John the Baptist, when he was at his weakest, he comes to the throne of grace and he asks Jesus for reassurance, for some hope, and this is exactly what Jesus gives him. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you that we have a compassionate and forgiving God. And so we witness here Jesus going on a miracle-making spree, a flurry of signs and wonders, of course for the benefit of those whom he healed, but he does this primarily just for John. The Messiah is serving his servant, for he knew this is exactly what John needed. He knew John was weak and needed reassurance, and so he heals all of these people and then turns to John's disciple and tells them, now go and tell John what you have just seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus here is quoting from Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61, and he's doing this. He's doing this because he knows that John was very well acquainted with the Scriptures and would immediately understand what Jesus was telling him because these passages from Isaiah describe the coming Messiah. Jesus was, in effect, bringing John back to the Scriptures, filling in some of the parts that John didn't understand, and he was showing John through his flurry of miraculous works that the kingdom of God is being established on earth and your king has arrived. Although John the Baptist may have been anticipating and looking forward to a Messiah full of vengeance and wrath, what he encountered instead was a Messiah full of compassion. Alexander McLaren said, and I paraphrase, that the deepest meaning of Jesus' answer to John's question was that love, pity, and healing are the true signs of the Messiah and not justice, retribution, and destruction. And so Jesus is, in effect, 
telling John that although the Messiah's winnowing fork is unquenchable fire, his axe that is laid to the root of the trees may not yet be here. And deliverance from the corrupt, evil Roman government is not yet. And the upending of the empty and corrupt religious regime is not yet. Jesus is sending John a clear and unmistakable message. John, even though you don't understand what I'm doing now, even though my actions may not seem right in your eyes, look at what I have done for you and believe I am here. And isn't that the same message, the same message that Jesus has been giving all of his despairing, doubting followers ever since the resurrection? Do you remember Jesus' words to doubting Thomas when he appeared to him after the resurrection? He said to Thomas, put your fingers here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus was saying, look at what I have done for you. And isn't this the same message that Jesus gives to all his doubting, despairing followers even today? He points us back to the cross and then he opens up scriptures for us so that we might see who he truly is, that we might look and see what he has done for us, that he is here. You doubt my provision for your needs? Look what I've done for you. You doubt that I can take away your shame, your pain, your suffering. Look at what I've done for you. You doubt my love and my care for you. Look at what I've done for you. I went to the cross for you. I suffered and I bled and I died for you. Brothers and sisters of Hawaii Church, this is your Messiah. Look at what he's done for us and believe our Messiah has come. And we end today's passage in verse 23 with Jesus' final words to his beloved cousin John. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The word for offended can also be interpreted as stumbled. In other words, blessed is the one who does not stumble over Jesus. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah 8:14 and in the New Testament in 1 Peter 2 we are told that for those who do not believe Jesus the Messiah will be a stone that makes them stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And so Jesus is using this imagery to encourage John not to stumble over him in unbelief but rather to be blessed by believing. And this will be Jesus' final words for us today as well. You may be suffering and not understanding what Jesus is allowing in your life right now. You may not have a complete understanding of who he is, and so your expectations of him may be skewed, and you may be doubting God's love for you. But don't let your doubt stop you from believing. Don't stumble over Jesus. Don't give up hope. Instead, 
Do what John did. Go to the Savior. Bring him your questions. And then look to the scriptures and let Jesus show you the beauty and the majesty of all that he has done for you on the cross and let him wash away your doubt. Your Messiah has come. Trust him. Believe him. Obey him. How blessed is the one who does not stumble over Jesus, the Christ. Please join me in prayer. Father, we do thank you again for this morning. We thank you for your holy word, which continues to help us to see you for who you truly are. And Holy Spirit, I do ask that you would indeed lead us into all truth, that you would remind us, Father, of these things so that, God, when we are struggling with doubt, when we encounter trials and tribulations in our lives, that we would look back to the cross and see what you have done, and we would believe that you are with us. We love you so much. We thank you and we praise you and pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.